following lecture was delivered by Frederick Behrman, the senior book conservator of the Public Records Office in London, on Tuesday, the 31st of July, 1990. It was entitled Triumph, Hope, and Tragedy, Preserving the Public Records of England. It was the 305th lecture in the Book Arts Press Rare Book School Evening Lecture Series. Good evening. And welcome to the ninth of nine lectures in 1990 Rare Book School. We're smarter than we used to be. Not smart, but smarter. In 1984, the second year of Rare Book School, we ran Rare Book School for six weeks and we had three evening lectures for each of the six weeks for a total of 18 lectures. My staff and I all went to the hospital immediately <laughs> upon the conclusion of the festivities, which were, however, fun while they lasted. So, this year's Child's Play by comparison. It's a great pleasure to welcome Frederick Behrman to this platform for the first time. Thank you. Um, my lecture this evening is going to be on triumph, hope, and tragedy, the preserving of the public records of England. And to start, I'll turn the projector on. Is it on? Yes, sir. Yes. It is? Good. Right. Despite all the neglect and other problems, nine centuries of record-keeping has preserved for England the richest national archives in Europe, if not the world. And our earliest surviving record, which is Doomsday Book. Sorry, I'll just move back. There we are. Can we have the lights out, perhaps? Thank you very much. Which is Doomsday Book, that great survey ordered by William the Conqueror as a means of regulating the collection of taxes, was, is our earliest record and the most coveted of all. It was compiled at the Anglo-Saxon capital of Winchester, and although created um, with great care, it took one year to compile, and as soon after it was completed, it went completely out of date. So by 1110, the Chamberlains came up with a new system of record-keeping, which was the King's Financial Annual Update which is known as the Pipe Roll. The Pipe Rolls began in 1110 and they ran as, an un, as they ran as a series of records from that date until 1830, when the Pipe Office was abolished. The earliest surviving example we have dates from 1129. Could you speak a little closer to the mic? Yes, of course. Great. There were two great offices of state, the Exchequer and the Chancery. The Exchequer had responsibility for the King's finances and the Chancery the responsibility for all other matters of state. The Chancery was in, in essence the King's scriptorium. They both favoured the role over the Codec as a means of record keeping. This may have been as a reaction towards Doomsday being a bound volume where extractions and insertions would have meant the cost of rebinding. So a roll offered a means whereby once it was compiled, if an extraction needed to be made or an insertion, as we can see here, once a cord was cut, 
on these ex the pipe roll, the thing would fall apart and the extraction can be made easily and then be piled back together again and sewn up, exactly like a modern file is today. The chancery rolls, in contrast, used the conventional form of making rolls where the skins of parchment are sewn end to end, as we see here in the chevron style of sewing, like that. In 1199, the Chancery instigated three great series of rolls, one the Charter Rolls, another the Close Rolls, that is, letters sent out to individuals, and the Pattern Rolls, letters sent out for all to hear. The latter two, that's the Pattern Roll and the Close Rolls, remain as a series of records to this very day. We have got up, well, the Chancery has, that is, got up to the 1940s in keeping these records. And just an illustration of how slow the wheels of government turn, they have recently turned from the use of parchment to the use of paper. <laughs> these great rolls, the, the Exchequer rolls and the Chancery rolls, were ordered by Henry II to be kept in great chests. They were known as the arks and the hutches of the treasury, and they were to be loaded on carts and to follow the royal baggage train around its travels throughout his domains. There was a, an incident where they actually employed an official to organise these carts. Eleven of them were used to carry the records of state. It is quite obvious that he needed these records for ease of access wherever, wherever he may be throughout his realm. The practice fell um, as Westminster and London became, became the preferred place of administration for royalty. So moving from the Anglo-Saxon capital of Winchester, London became the main place of royal administration. And it also may have been as a reaction to the unfortunate accident that befell King John in 1216 when the royal baggage train was lost in the wash. That is, that part of England that has very treacherous tides that runs on the north of Norfolk, that bit there, and the, there's quicksand along that area. And I believe that his royal baggage train, either, I think for speed of movement, had to cross the sands and the whole lot went under. So fortunately for history, Doomsday Book and various other important records weren't among it. Westminster Abbey, as I've just said, became the preferred place of royal coronations as well as keeping records. And records were stored in, I'm crossing the wrong one here, sorry, in the Chapel of the Picts, which had been uh, a repository for keeping the royal uh, mint, where they um, had the dyes for, for stamping out the, uh, the coins. They also used this for exchequer records. And there's a recording of a daring break-in into this uh, repository by a merchant who had bribed one of the abbot's assistants, and he got away with many, much of the... Um, gold and silver plate. So it, for a while, the chamberlains of the Exchequer were nervous as to keeping their records in the Abbey, but sooner or later, they were won over. So the Chapel of the Picts was used, and the undercroft of the Chapter House was used. As I have said, the records were stored in great chests, 
This particular example is the Doomsday Chess, with its two volumes on top in the, 19, in, in the 1952 binding. It's bound in iron, and as you can see, it has three separate locks. One, two, three. The security system was that there had to be three officials from the, from the Treasury present before it could be opened, each of them having their own key. These great chests were moved to the public record office in the 1850s, and the, the, the examples that still remain in the Abbey, in the Abbey Library, are 16 feet long, they stand three and a half feet high, and they date from the, from the latter part of the 13th century. They are enormous pieces of Rom late Romanesque furniture. Presumably the reason why they weren't moved to the public record office is to do with their size, but I encourage you, if anyone gets the opportunity, to see them as, as a very beautiful example of Romanesque furniture. Anyway, inside these great chests... one were smaller coffers like this one. This measures three and a half feet long by two and a half feet wide, and it's rather like a modern-day filing cabinet with four separate compartments, each with its own lock and key. It's an, it's an exquisite example. This was made in 1250. Inside that would have been little wicker hampers where each individual record could have been folded up inside this hamper. That lends its name to the hampers that we take on our picnics today, and there were many hundreds of these in the Exchequer, but unfortunately that is the only surviving example. And inside that were little alum tord pouches. These are the pouches of the sheriff's accounts, they would have put their accounts inside, brought, the, um, brought to the exchequer to be audited. The exchequer would have kept that account, and I believe from uh, the writings of Henry Cole that the exchequer had nails on the walls where they also hung these, these satchels or wallets on top. We have many hundreds of them that have survived. This is rather an exquisite example with the pink tassels on the corners. And their, their long life is due, I believe, to the nature of that material, this wonderful alum tord leather. They're made with great care, and I don't know whether they went back and forth with the sheriffs. That's something that one may need to investigate. But they illustrate the care that is taken in looking after these exchequer records. Now, how do you administer a vast quantity of records. And I must add here, I'm very grateful for references and um, ideas from Elizabeth Hallam Smith, who is an assistant keeper of medieval records at the Public Record Office, who guided me onto the um, Libra A and Libra B book, which was written in 1286, which illustrates the way in which the Exchequer identified various records. When you have a mass of records, you've got to have ease of reference and easy ways of finding and putting them back. Well, what they did was use a system of pictograms. This one was standing for Gascony, that great wine-producing area that belonged to the English after Henry II had married Helena of Aquitaine. And it shows clearly 
people making wine, and that stood for, for treaties and other diplomatic records made between uh, Gascony and England, and that would have been put on the chest where it belonged, and it was very easily, easily uh, for the Chamberlain's serfs to find out or to replace records. The other pictograms... This one is an axe at the top there which stood for the country of Scotland, presumably to illustrate the rustic nature of those people. <laughs> the next one is uh, a knight jousting, practising jousting, and this one stood for Aragon, presumably a rather warlike people, I would imagine. And the last example I have here is a gun. This is on a treaty roll, and... I asked Liz why they used a gun, and she suggested that it may have been that if the treaty wasn't kept, that's what they were going to get. <laughs> but um, that just may be modern-day conjecture, I'm not sure. But this is the method that we, they, they used to, to um, store their records away for ease of reference. Unfortunately today, and Liz and I have looked at many of the chests, either at the public record office and at Westminster, the only ones we've came or come across that have some form of identification on them are the treaty chests. There are two of these, and they, they have the coat of arms of the people responsible for drawing up the treaties on them. On the lid, you can see the ancient coat of arms of the Black Prince and the, um, the royal household of France. The lock was forced because by the time of the 17th and 18th century, when people wanted to know about history, the lock had totally corroded, so they had to be forced to get to the documents inside. I'm not going to... You can use your imagination to, to um, figure out what state the documents were in inside that thing. Not only Westminster, but other places were used as record repositories. Westminster, of course, is down here, and the palace was right next door to the Abbey of Westminster. Westminster Palace housed the headquarters of the Exchequer, and the Great Hall, built by Richard II, had three little rooms underneath it, and I should come and talk about that later. Up here was another preferred place of placing records, that's the Knights Templar Church. Up here is St. Bartholomew's. Other records were stored there. And over here, of course, is the Tower of London. And the White Tower was used for many centuries as a repository for the Chancery. Here is a, an engraving of Westminster with the Abbey and the Great Hall. This Great Hall had the Exchequer at this end in some of these houses here. Underneath that hall were three rooms called Hell, Heaven and Purgatory where the Exchequer stored their records and when the Great Fire came, many of them had to be moved away into safer places. The tower... Oops, sorry, wrong one. There we are. The tower, the White Tower, the famous Norman White Tower, was used as a record repository quite early on. And when the Black Prince had captured the King of France, they had to make 
room by moving many of the records out into other places to make room for him to stay in, to stay in the Tower of London. But the romantic vision that we have of the Tower of London is a fortress. I don't think existed um, probably not much after it was built. But when we have a look in the, which, the way in which they used the very exquisite um, Caesar Chapel in the White Tower, you can see how the records have been stored and racks were put up. Sorry, wrong one. And the racks were put up. Here you've got the racking put up and the chancery rolls are all set inside there. This prompted one of the 19th century keepers of the records at the tower to say that unfortunately the only people that visit this place today to see its lovely architecture are those American tourists. My own countrymen have forgotten their past. And it shows you the where we have these very important historical buildings, the government used them for totally different means than what they were meant. And during the early part of the 19th century, they were only seen as a means of a dry, fireproof place to keep the records. It's not until we move into the middle or latter part of the 19th century that they start to begin seen as historical um, architecture in their own right. The next important place of reposit was the Rolls Chapel. This is an exquisite little drawing of the Rolls Chapel. This was founded by Henry III in 1232 as a place for converted Jews. But like most things, it soon became taken over by the Chancery to store their records. <laughs> And it became the private estate of the Master of the Rolls, who was a high official within the Chancery. He still exists today, by the way. So we had this image of the records being dotted about all over London. The choice of fireproof buildings being placed in their chests. Many of those chests had little feet on them to keep them off the very cold and damp stones of these um, stone buildings. When we come to up in the 17th century, as the Rolls Chapel was fitted out, as we'll see in the next slide, this is rather a nice little pencil drawing of that, Samuel Pepys visited this chapel to hear one of the preachers at the Rolls Chapel, and he wrote, I visited the Rolls Chapel to hear a sermon and sat on one of the pews and found it stuffed with records. <laughs> There's no evidence that he ever returned. Whether he did or not, we don't know. But that gives us a vivid, vivid idea of how every inch of space was used. Wherever they had a record office, they stuffed the records in everywhere. And the Rolls Chapel was notorious for having records scattered about everywhere. So it's giving you an idea that the as the records were being produced, that there was a real problem in trying to solve the, the, um, the storage problems. When we look at the records, as I have done, it's quite obvious that they're not all just rolls. There are books as well. Many of them have come not because the Exchequer have created them, but like this one, which is a late Romanesque binding. It dates from 1185, and it's called the Knights Templar Book and belongs to the series of records, which is the King's Remembrancer Books.
It's known as Brother Jeffrey's book, and it's a list of lands owned by the Knights Templar, and it would give them an idea of how many rent, how much rate, rents to pay, and one thing and another. It's important for the public records because it's our earliest surviving original binding. As we can see, it has a typical Romanesque decoration, and up the top is a tab which would have stood up on a sort of arc-like structure at the top, and there would have been one at the bottom. And as pointed out to be my by Chris Clarkson, who came to see these books quite recently. This tab has not been stitched as such to the top of the headband. It's had a tacket slipped under it, which he described as rather a crude way of doing this sort of thing. But if we look more closely at the binding, we'll see that it has very nicely executed decoration in typical late Romanesque style, with these heraldic birds the heron eating a fish, and a griffin, which Miriam Foote and other book historians have put down as a London binding, and not forgetting that the Knights Templar were indeed London-based, that the area that we call the temple today was their headquarters, and this book could easily have been bound in London by, by either one of their own bookbinders or a lay person employed to do that sort of thing. And it found its way into the public record office when the Knights Templars were dissolved, presumably as a means that the Crown could administer or keep tabs on the rents that they were, were, that they were receiving. So that's how that came about being in the public record office. But what we'll do is just have a closer look at its structure. There's its original sewing in the herringbone style, and I presume you must have been talking about that in your last week or so of school. It has a slot where the alum tawed thongs slip through. Fortunately for us, the leather had worn away quite early on in its use. It must have been quite heavily used, either by the Knights Templar or by the Exchequer once they got hold of it. And because the leather had gone away or rotted away, the vellum and the sewing was able to flex very, very easily, only on itself. So it's preserved that in, in many respects in, in quite a good order. If we look at the, the next slide, we'll see how the thongs are attached and they slip through a little slot there, go along and go into another hole and are held, and I believe that that is in an alum tawed peg. It's not a wooden peg that, most pe that, most, that we find on most of these books. And that, is, that would have been filled in with some sort of earth filler, which has fallen out now, so that the leather had a fairly flat surface to sit upon for its decoration. And another point just to notice here is the, the headband has been sewn on the book and then laced in through the head there down into this channel here. A very strong and durable means of attaching boards. Other bindings amongst the Exchequer miscellaneous books is this one. This is an alum tawed limp cover. This is a monastic book to do with lands belonging to a particular monastery. I am not sure how it came into the Exchequer, but what it illustrates is that the book itself, if I go to the next slide, had some sort of probably a different binding on it because I'm looking at this in detail it has little nicks at the top which meant that it had a, 
uh, a sewn headband, which there is no evidence here on this binding. And I think when it got into the exchequer, they may have taken the binding off, or the binding may have already been lost, and they've had this very durable alum tord cover slipped through the thongs and around it. And what's nice, what's nice to um, look at here is the way in which there's this sort of half an inch of material overlapping there. Another binding is this limp vellum. This dates from 1304, and it's to do with the miscellaneous counts of the exchequer. This would be due to with wages, paying out wages to, pe to, to men in various places. What we see about the structure is it has this zigzag stitching at the top, rather characteristic of this type of binding, and along the bottom there, and little tackets that hold the sections together that go through the cover. Unknown to anyone until we'd opened this book up is that the cover is made from two sheets of parchment from discarded accounts, and they face each other so that we have a blank sheet of parchment on the back and on the front. I wasn't aware of this until we decided to put a light through it like that. So when I get back to um, England, I shall tell Liz about that, and she'll be delighted to find that she's found a new record. The um, other sorts of materials used to bind books, and I, I must emphasize that these are essentially cheap bindings. I don't think the Exchequer meant them to last 500 years. I don't think that they had any idea that they would. It's to the nature of the material that has made them last. Vellum is an extremely durable material. This particular one has had the hair left on, not probably because it looks very beautiful, because it's probably cheaper than taking the hair off. And that probably was addressed alum salt skin, possibly English, I'm not quite sure, but what we see is a little tacket that holds it together, and it's a lovely example of this type of material used in the exchequer for their books. That's a close-up of the tacket. That's a little knot. This one is an unusual curiosity. It's a theologian notebook. It dates from 1390. And as you can see, it's sewn on what we call vegetable tan thongs down here. The sections that make up the book are quite irregular. It has no proper cover. And when we look through it, we see that it's sewn up with blue thread. And somehow little nicks have been put into it, which usually suggests a sewing hole or something from another book. These may have been scraps of material that one of the chamberlains picked up from the scriptorium floor and decided to, to pop them together and made a little book out of. The sewing is not all along in the tra traditional sense. It's more like little tackets going around the volume. As you, as you can see, there's a little knot. So here it illustrates how the ingenuity of the medieval man, when he's dealing with materials, he is able to use what is available and knock up something to suit his purpose. I rather like this illustration of ingenuity. This one is undoubtedly a French binding. The book is to do with customs accounts of Bordeaux, and as I've just said, Gascony, uh, Bordeaux being its capital, was a part of the English colonies down there. 
so this is how this got into the Exchequer. It's to do with wine imports, this particular one. The English liking their claret a hell of a lot. And it's a very nice example of this diced decoration, perhaps the earliest in the public record office. I don't know. I came across this in a box of miscellaneous accounts. It's a very nicely executed binding. And if we have a look inside, we see that it's paper content, definitely French. The book would have been held together by stitching that doesn't come onto the front cover in any form. There's no thongs involved. And, the, and what holds the front cover onto the book block is the paste downs, which have come away here, which gives us uh, an insight into how the book was put together. Paper, as I've just said, was used. It wasn't used for the most important records, like the rolls, but it was used for things that perhaps were, were only to be kept for a year or so, but did be, that were kept by the Chamberlains for much longer. This is an, an illustration of a 1320 watermark, French. It's a griffin that appears to be wearing a pair of glasses. <laughs> and the next one whoops, is... Uh, this is um, a hawk, and the next one is a demi-cow. We have... <laughs> there is an immense richness of watercolours within the public record office. It's never been tapped. We have in the conservation department in this last year set up a, a programme of recording watermarks by using either beta radiography or slides or drawings. So hopefully we'll be uh, publishing some of the sets from the state papers on, on watermarks, trying to identify them and put them in, in a historical precedent um, and um, give them a greater, higher profile within the public records. This is a nice example of um, a late 13th century binding. And it has, instead of the thread that went round the edges, it has these vellum slips that lace through holding the turnings round. And as you can see there, there are multiple tackets holding all the various sections in, like that. A very straightforward, simple binding, but because of the selection of the materials, has lasted for many hundreds of years. And that's the interior paper content, limp vellum structure. But let's get back to keeping uh, where, where we were in the, in the um, 16th century with the uh, coming up to how the Tudors looked after their records. This is a Tudor binding in the typical Tudor decoration. Probably may have been by the, by the King's Henry VIII book binder. It has the various heraldic devices of the Tudor period, as you can see. It has the Tudor coat of arms, a Tudor crown, a pomegranate, the rose, and this extraordinary device here, which we believe is either the insignia of the bookbinder or the roll in, um, engraver. These have to be seen with great care. I don't think that anyone can just say, oh, that's a bookbinder. I think the history of cutting these rolls has to be very well investigated before we can say who precisely did that. That extraordinary thing down there, that Barbican, represents not only a castle, but the three hills of Jerusalem. And there are many examples of that type of thing in watermarks, which is a similar date to this type of binding. 
This, by the way, is um, 1540s. And then we come to the reign of Elizabeth with this binding by the medallion binder who uses the typical Renaissance Italian devices to decorate his books. These is, this is one of the earlier, not the earliest, but the earlier use of gold leaf in England. And he uses separate little tools to make up the royal coat of arms with the ER on either side, this great diagonal shape here, or a rather diamond shape, with this roll, which has been identified as being used by Henry VIII's bookbinder, and these devices in the it Italian style going round here. Just to give you some idea of the uniqueness of the books at the Public Record Office, there are examples of this man's work at the British Library, but I haven't seen any examples there that are two feet high, as this book is. It's two feet high and 14 inches wide, and it's, it covers the surveys of the Duchy of Lancaster lands on the first reign of, of Elizabeth's um, um, year, which is uh, 1558. The ER may well have stood for Edward VI, and they used the books because it was already stamped ER. They didn't have to change it. Whereas in, when we got to the reign of um, James I and going to Charles, they had to scratch his name out to put on various other devices. So it was convenient that this book may have well have been bound in Edward's reign. But going back to how the records were kept during the Tudor period... They took great care during the Tudor period, perhaps because it was a transition between the medieval period and the modern world. I don't know. But these great doors, these great oak doors, were put on, put on the Exchequer records in 1555. That's the reign of, of Philip and Mary. Then going on after that, we have... This is, this is a drawing of the pipe office... They were still making those pipe rolls at that date. And I don't know whether you can make out from those little drawings that, that, that they, that's where the thing is sewn, at that head like that. And they roll them up rather like a sausage roll. And you can just see where the, the sewing bit is there. It's not like a conventional roll at all. Anyway, the point is that these great doors were put on this office to try and protect the rolls from dust and dirt. Little did they know that what it did was conceal all the damp and mildew going on behind them but um, this was pointed out in the 19th century that that is not an ideal way of keeping records so everything during the Tudor period or up to the late Elizabethan period things were looked after quite well but when we get to the 17th century with the civil war with the movement from the medieval period into the new world, things were not as they ought to be. The, record, the medieval records certainly fell into great decay. And the House of Laws set up a committee in 1719 to investigate the state of the public records. And they commented on one instant that they were horrified to find that certain royal writs were being kept in a house adjacent to the royal fishmonger in Fishmonger Yard and that he was doing what he pleased with them. I mean, presumably serving up the fish in some royal writ. However, 
that wasn't the end of the story. For in 1751, the chapter house roof fell in, causing a lot of decay and plaster all over the records of state. So, in 1800, it was fitted out as we see it here. All this racking was put up. The, wind, the Gothic windows were removed, and these rather elegant, what I say, Baroque or 17th century windows put in, like this. And then the second floor put up there. You can see the rolls and the nature of the material that's put in there. And this is the undercroft here, which has always been a medieval repository. Now, that wasn't the end of the story, because in 1832, the Houses of Parliament burnt down, causing a great disarray to everyone concerned. And... Apart from Henry Cole, who was called to the scene, there was another chap on the scene that was Turner. And what he saw, he put down on a watercolour, which I'm going to show you the next slide. But the cause of the fire were these tally sticks. The exchequer had amassed enormous quantities of these tally sticks, and they were using them to fuel the, the heating system in the, um, in the House of Parliament. I presume that due to the zealous enthusiasm of the stoker, the uh, whole place caught fire and, and uh, caused enormous amount of damage. Turner's illustration here, this is Turner's watercolour of the burning, that's the Great Hall there. And on the other side of the Great Hall, behind that, is the augmentations office. And Henry Cole wrote... The fire broke out at 7pm. I was fetched by Peter Paul, a workman engaged on the repair of the records, and as I found that the office was threatened by the fire, with the aid of a policeman and the guards, I moved the whole of the records to St Margaret's Church during the night. And in a few months, they were all sorted, rearranged, and placed in such circumstances that no one could ever remember how nice they ever looked now. So it gives you an illustration that although the fire was a terrifying thing and it lost a lot of historical buildings for England, we didn't lose our national records. For the foresight of Henry Cole, he came to the scene, organised the removal of these, the um, augmentations records and put them in St Margaret's Church, which is just by Westminster Abbey, still stands there today. Henry Cole needs a special mention because he was an extraordinary Victorian man. Not only did he um, invent the Christmas card and the penny post, he um, was tremendously enthusiastic about the proper care of the records. He started up proper systems of, of repair. He laid down many of the rules that still guide repair in the public record office today. And his legacy is enormous, so we, we owe a lot to him. Moving on from this period, the, the, um, in, in, 13, in, in 1838, it was decided that a new record office be made, which will be the central administration of government archives, and it was to be set at the Rolls Chapel site here. And Sir James Pennyfawn won the competition. 
and his drawings for the um, new record office are here, and what he did was set them up into cells like this, so that if fire was ever to break out in one, it couldn't spread to the other. They had cast iron shelving, a cast iron uprights on slate shelving, and two and a half inch thick walls made of masonry. That was the idea behind that plan. That still stands today, of course. And just moving on, this was the first park put up in the 1850s. The records were moved from the chapter house into this building. He was very concerned, Henry Cole was very concerned, that some of the records still remained in these rickety old houses as he described them in Chantry Lane. They were also pulled down to make way for the new facade of the record office. This is one of the great cast iron doors of the record office at Chancery Lane and behind them we have an illustration of modern record keeping. <laughs> These are the pattern rolls, or the pipe rolls rather, and you can see the way they've been bound up like that. It's not ideal but it serves a purpose at the moment and I'm sure that when we get our new record office built they can be placed into better circumstances. This is the reading room. This is known as the round room, an ideal Victorian, in, well, uh, how they thought the records should be read in this mock Tudor um, environment. And this apparatus is used to read the pipe rolls. That gentleman, by the way, is Norman Evans, who's the assistant keeper of the repository. And that apparatus is suited to read the pipe roll. Extraordinary thing. This is a photograph taken in 1911 of the Conservation Department of the Public Records. We still use those presses today, although we don't use smoking caps when we're repairing them. And it, shows, it gives an illustration of the concern that was underway in repairing the neglect of many hundred years. And coming up to the war years, there was a lot of festivity before the war. This is a Christmas party. During the war years, the records moved out to a prison in Cambridge, and many of the very deep underground um, stations in London were used as record repositories. And then in 1976, the new record office was built. That's it at Kew. And inside there, high-tech modern record storage, <laughs> where the repository staff go around on those little trolleys. What I want to talk, that is mainly an introduction, and what I want to say is that I'm not a historian, I am not an archivist. What I've tried to do is give you an idea of the importance the conservator must lay on understanding how the record has got to him. And what I'm going to talk about now, for the next ten minutes or so, is one of the projects that's underway within the Public Record Office, under my guidance, which is the preservation and conservation of bookbinding structures found amongst the records. And it, I'm going to centre on one particular type of record, which is the indenture to Henry VII's chapel. This is the indenture... Very, very luxurious bindings. There are two of these in the public records. There's one at St. Paul's Cathedral. There is one at the British Library. The indenture was made between Henry VII and the Abbot of Westminster, the Mayor of London, and the Bishop of St. Paul's. The agreement was is that he would pay money forever 
for them to give prayers for him and his family in the chapel that he'd created at the end of Westminster Church, or Abbey, which, was, which, which became known as Henry VII's Chapel. Now, what we see here in this illustration is the heraldic devices of Henry's family, the portcullis and the Tudor rose, his royal coat of arms, and right down there is this book being given from the abbot to him. And what we see at the top are the wavy lines of the indenture, which is an agreement. And that, by this time, had fallen out really as a very important means of keeping uh, an agreement. And I'll come and talk to that in a minute. Rather, it's more of a, um, a time-honoured tradition way of doing things, if you like. So let's just go on and talk about the bindings themselves. This is one of the books. They measure from the end of the chemise and to the bottom, two and a half feet. The width is 18 inches, and they stand three to four inches high off the, off the, the bench or table with the bosses as well. The bosses represent the royal coat of arms and the arms of the Beauchamp family, which was his mother. This one is a slightly less refined example of the next volume. I'm sorry, it's quite a bad slide. But here you have, as much as the chapel is the last blaze of Gothic architecture, here is the last blaze of Gothic bookbinding in England. And the bosses, the clasps, and all that go with it are the, the ultimate expression of Gothic bookbinding. We have a closer look at the clasp. We see the Tudor angel, which is exactly the same as those inside the chapel today, sitting on top of the boss, or this clasp here, which is exactly the same as the central boss within the chapel. So there's a tie-up between the, the decoration on the binding and the chapel itself. There's the little boss on the other, rather less decorative binding, the Tudor Rose. This is the, the nature of, the, of an indenture. This, is, this dates from the mid-14th uh, century. And as you can see, the wavy line is cut through there, and each party would make their agreement, and when they had to come to pay their whatever dues, it would be put together, and they would uh, see whether one part had forged it or another. So when we get to Henry VII's agreement... Not only is the binding, which I have classed as a chemise binding, and I'm not talking about an overcover, which is a separate thing, or a girdle binding. I'm talking about this chemise binding, and in this instance, a late 15th century example. You can see the chemise hanging down there as it goes over the cover, and there's the wavy line of the indenture. This is the abbot giving his that, sorry, the king had been giving his copy to the abbot there. The one in, where, in St. Paul's Cathedral is the king receiving the copy from the, um, the bishop. And there is the book being used in prayer, giving prayers for the souls of his family. Henry VII, as I've just said, was uh, a very wealthy king. He amassed enormous wealth and used it to build this chapel. He not only built the chapel, but he made 27 vestments. And there's an excellent article by Lisa Moons in the 1989 uh, edition of the Burlington about the, um, the Italian brocade used 
on the vestments. And I believe that the Italian brocade is also being used on these bindings. And I've had her down to look at these books, and she's verified that it is Italian, and it dates from the 1500. So, and the velvet cover is also the same. A lot of money has been put into binding these books. The, the books themselves are covered with a similar type of brocade. But how do we explain the nature of this binding? Why should it have these overlapping pieces along here? They can't just be for the sake of preventing dust and light getting in, because they have a rather stylized manner to them. I believe that they come from not associated with girdle bindings, as we see here. You can't slip a two-and-a-half-foot-long a two book under your belt and expect to carry it around. It's impossible. But they believe, they, I believe that they, that type of binding belongs to a long history of protecting the sacred word. And here you see an early example. This is a, a 12th-century manuscript. Here the angel comes down and his hand... Is, is, uh, the book is protected from, from his own hand, even though he's divine. His own hand is protecting the book by this piece of material. And I think that that theme is taken up throughout the medieval period. And if I just throw, show you this series of slides, you'll see what I mean. There again, it's being held under this material, like that. And I'm not saying that every single precious religious work is protected in this way but I think the idea is there and you can see it there this is, this is late 1300s this one going into the 1420s now what happens here this is a saint with his various devices so they could identify him but you see the way he protects that grail by his garments there and I, do, I think it's no exaggeration and there is a book protected by garments there I think it's no exaggeration to believe that the innovation by the use of garments to protect things goes to exaggeration into this style of binding like that. And I don't think they're necessarily, although there are examples of being worn by, by, by the belt, but they are to be shown. They're a fashion um, status symbol. That that person is a pious person and they have protected the word of God by this covering. And when we come... Oh, next carousel, perhaps. Sorry. The, the, the point I'm trying to make is it is no good just looking at the binding on face value. One needs to look at the, the whole history, the social history and art historical history that surrounds it. Unfortunately for books, not a lot of work has been done on that. When I have spoken to art historians of the Renaissance and Tudor period, they come to a stump when they talk about books. It's true, a lot of work has been done on decorative bindings, but when we're talking about these rather unusual structures where the structure or the way in which the book has been bound lends it a totally different meaning whereas it has a conscious being of its own and I believe that the medieval man or late medieval man would have seen that binding for exactly what it was either expressed in art or in sculpture they would have seen that it's protecting the word of God it is a, it is a prayer book or something like that okay are we ready then? Are we going forward or backwards? Should I go backwards? <laughs>
Weet je daarom? Nee, ik Right. Well, ah, well done. This is the stained glass window put in by Jacques Hoare, that great <laughs> late medieval French entrepreneur in, um, this is in uh, Bourges Cathedral, and you see that type of binding being used here. There, whoops, sorry. I'm always pressing the wrong thing here. There we go. There it is, there. That's what I call a chemise binding. And it's not so much an expression of trying to protect the book, but it's giving an illustration of what that book is, the importance it plays in the, in the hierarchy of, of that person's life. And if we remember that during this period, which is the 1400s, there was a great reinsurgence in, in religious life. And the, these people wanted to show that they were indeed very pious and religious people. And here this stands for his, his um, offerings to the Virgin, in a sense. And that book, I believe, is part of not just the binding, but it's a part of the whole social and art historical um, being of that time and there's another example this is English this is in the Beecham Chapel at Warwick um, Church and there's another lovely example of that type of binding and this is a Spanish one this is contemporary with Henry VII and you see the, the skirt I call it a skirt some people call it an apron I'm quite prepared to be one round there it is there with the man on there. And I'm told by art historians that these paintings are painted uh, not because uh, pe these people had time to pray every five minutes, which they were expected to do if it's a book of hours, but it's because they took the place of them play praying. So the book has a very central part to play within those paintings. And we come to modern times and our attitude to the way in which we preserve books and conserve them. And looking at this poster, which is a propaganda poster put out in England for preserving our heritage, here we have an example of where the book is preserved. Sorry. The book is preserved, but the chemise can rot away. So I think it's important, I hope I've proved this evening that the book, the chemise cover, are part and parcel of each other. And it's important that we understand that and preserve and enjoy them as they are. Thank you very much.